in the book called Sit, Walk, Stand, written by the Chinese church leader Watchman Nee, he described a mission trip off of the South China coast. The mission team had seven people, including a 16-year-old new convert whom they called Brother Wu. The island had about 6,000 homes. Unfortunately, their preaching wasn't being received very much. There wasn't much fruit. The main reason was because of the people's devotion to an idol they called Ta Wang. Ta Wang. They were convinced of Ta Wang's power because every year they would have a festival and a parade in honor of Ta Wang, and it never rained on that day. And they claimed that this had gone on for 286 years. Brother Wu asked a group who were listening when the date was this year. They told him January 11th at 8 a.m. Wu promised that it would rain on the 11th. The crowd responded by saying, that is enough. We don't want to hear any more preaching. If there is rain on the 11th, then your God is God. Very interesting, right? So the Christians got to praying. (laughs) On that morning, though, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. They said grace for breakfast, though, and rain started to fall, followed by a heavy rain. The worshipers of Ta Wang were upset, and so they put their idol in a chair and brought it outside in hopes that it would stop the rain. But the rain actually increased and became the biggest storm in years. The people carrying the idol stumbled. The idol fell, and it broke its jaw and its left arm of the idol. As a result of this event, some of the young people believed in Christ. Some of the village elders, though, said, we made a mistake. It's actually January 14th. (laughs) (laughs) So they reset the date. In the meantime, in in the days in between, the village saw about 30 new converts to Christ. When the 14th arrived, again, there was a torrential rain. God was triumphant. The power of that idol was broken, and many converts followed. What a great story. As powerful as that story is, today we're going to look at a biblical story where God demonstrates his power over idols in an even more dramatic fashion. I believe you're going to be riveted and strengthened in your faith as we cover this incredible passage. Today we're going to continue our series that I've been calling Five Great Bible Stories. The Bible is made up of incredible stories. It is itself one grand story of redemption. But we're going to look at five great stories. And we're familiar perhaps with these stories, but I want to flesh them out a little bit more, discuss them in light of Scripture, and see what they might mean for our lives today. And as we come to Christmas, we're going to conclude on the 19th with the birth of Christ, the story of the birth of Christ. But today we're going to cover Elijah 
and the prophets of Baal. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So let me invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, found on page 299. Hope you had a chance to read it during the week. It will help you get the most out of it if you get a chance to read it ahead of time. While you're turning to page 299, or if you have it in one of your personal Bibles there, while you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of background to this story. We are now in the 8th century B.C. It's about 100 years after the time of David, the last story that we looked at, David and Goliath. And at this point, the kingdom of Israel that David united was now sadly divided into two parts. You had the southern kingdom, which was comprised of Judah and Benjamin. The, the, the southern kingdom, most dominant tribe was Judah, and so this kingdom was named Judah. You also had the ten other tribes that formed what was called Israel. They retained that name Israel. And so you had two kingdoms here. The kingdom of Judah had the temple in Jerusalem. They had the kings who were descended from David, whom God promised to uh, honor as part of his covenant. The northern kingdom, Israel, they established their own kingship, and they sadly, all of the kings just were unrighteous leaders, and they also fell quickly into idolatry. However, God continued to call them back by means of prophets who urged them to abandon false gods and to return to right worship of him that he had established. Now, in this context, God was using prophets, but he perhaps was going to raise up one of the greatest prophets of all, maybe none greater than than simply Moses, a man named Elijah. He appears in 1 Kings chapter 17. And in this chapter, chapter 17, uh, Elijah tells Ahab, the king of Israel, that there's going to be a drought, a severe drought, surely because of Israel's idolatry. Part of the Mosaic Covenant was when God's people rebelled, God would send calamities upon them to stir them to repentance and to forsake their idolatry and turn back to them. And this is what was taking place. In chapter 17, we also read about several of Elijah's miracles, such as the, the famous oil and the, and the flour that continued on for this widow and her son. And then later we read that the, the woman's son became ill and died, but Elijah raised him from the dead. The famine wore on there in Israel, and Ahab's evil wife, Jezebel, killed the Lord's prophets. Then Elijah met a righteous man named Obadiah who served under Ahab but was secretly hiding prophets in caves, about a hundred prophets. He was hiding away and feeding them. They meet Elijah and Obadiah. Elijah wanted Obadiah to pass a message on to Ahab, but Obadiah said, no, (laughs) I want you to talk to him yourself. And so that's where we pick up here in our passage, and we're going to break our passage down into three parts. The first part is the announcement of the contest. So if you're with me, let's pick up in verse 17. We're going to read through 19. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. 
Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah, he rebukes Ahab, right? Says that he's actually the one who is troubling Israel by bringing all of this idolatry into the land. And this idolatry specifically of Baal and Asherah. Just for your information, Baal was a Canaanite god of rain and fertility. And for the nation of Israel, which lived in kind of a drier region there, this was a common source of temptation for them to chase after worshiping the god of Baal. But I believe God brought a a drought specifically here to show that Baal was not in charge of the rain, but that he was in charge of the rain. Asherah, the other deity mentioned here, was actually the mother of Baal and his lover. Kind of sick, right? And a fertility goddess. And just so you see the difference between what was uh, taught in Scripture and these pagan religions, devotion to Baal involved worship of idols and ritual prostitution. Okay? Elijah, grieved over all of these things he's seen, also mentions how the prophets, these false prophets, they're actually supported by Jezebel. So this was the condition of Israel at the time. Do you see how dismal it is? Everybody see that? I mean, I mean they're, they're, the, the king and queen are funding these false prophets and actually killing the Lord's prophets. Elijah has a plan to change things. He tells Ahab to gather all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, 850 prophets. I'd say that's being outnumbered, right? 850 to 1. And he wants them to go to Mount Carmel. Here's a picture of of Mount Carmel. It's about 1,800 feet tall. Mount Carmel was also a stronghold of Baal worship. So Elijah, I mean, he's really just kind of going deep into enemy territory here. Incredible. Incredible. Only God can do this. I mean, it's a seemingly impossible situation. He asked that all of the people of Israel would come. So I'm envisioning, you know, this isn't just 10, 20 people hanging around. This contest is about to happen. This gathered perhaps thousands of people to make this trek, to see this. And really, this is an incredible contest. There's really nothing like this in Scripture that I know of, this kind of grand-scale contest where God just takes on the false gods of Canaan. So let's read what happens next in verses 20 to 24. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the uh, the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Ahab shows up on the scene. 
with his 450 prophets. No mention is, is made of the prophets of Asherah. I guess they just chickened out or something. They didn't show up for the contest. Elijah, he rebukes the people for limping between the Lord and Baal. That word limping is significant. It's going to appear again. And it's just indicating that the people needed to make a choice. They kept vacillating between the Lord and Baal and these other gods. They, they kept going back and forth. They were not making a firm choice. They were limping rather than resolving to follow the Lord. If you recall from earlier in biblical history, remember how Joshua, the same kind of thing was going on with the nation there. And Joshua urged the people to either follow the Lord or not. And the people said, yes, we will follow the Lord. But this group is not doing that, is that? They don't say anything. They know Elijah called them out, but they're also not really responding to it either. They're just kind of silent. So Elijah goes on to describe this contest. Again, he says on one side is just him. He's the only prophet of the Lord remaining. Now we know that there are other prophets because Obadiah was hiding them in caves, but he's the only one who's willing to come out and take a public stand. And on the other side, of course, you have all of these prophets of Baal. Each side is going to give, be given a bull to sacrifice. And when they have prepared that, they're to call down fire on the sacrifice. The one who answers is the true God. And so when the people hear about this contest, they all agree, this is a good contest. Let's see what happens. So that's the announcement of the contest. Everybody following along so far? Let's go to the second part, the defeat of Baal. The defeat of Baal. Verses 25 to 29. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So, we see here Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, hey, you're up first. You go first. They prepare the bull. They call upon Baal from morning until noon. Interestingly, just so you know, Baal was also seen as the god of lightning. So, I mean, if he's the god of lightning, all he's got to do is just send out a bolt, boom, and that fire's going up, right? But nothing happens. Despite all this time they have and the hundreds of prophets, there's no reply to their pleas. And notice how it says this, that they were limping around, these prophets, right? Elijah had already kind of gotten on the people of Israel because they were limping between the Lord and, Israel, uh, and the prophets of Baal and so forth. And now he's kind of saying the same thing. These prophets of Baal, they should be defeated. But they're just kind of limping around. At noon, Elijah, <laughs> he starts to do what I would call prophetic trash talking. 
I think there's a, you know, it's kind of fun sometimes, like playing sports, to do some nice trash talking, you know, just having fun with each other kind of thing. Well, so he tells the prophets, hey, you keep on crying out, right? Baal's surely going to hear you. He's a god. Or maybe he doesn't because he's musing, right? He's thinking a lot of deep thoughts. In other words, Baal really can't hear. He can't handle more than one conversation at a time. (laughs) Or perhaps he's relieving himself. I'll let that one go. (laughs) Or perhaps he's on a journey. He's not around, right? Leave a message at the tone. (laughs) He's not there. Or perhaps he's asleep, so you need to wake him up. Elijah's having a good old time. (laughs) He's really enjoying this. And his comments are funny, but they're also sad because they're accurate. People who worship these gods, they believe these things about their gods, that they would do these things. Oh, they'd be going on the bathroom, they're gone, they're on a journey and so forth. What a contrast to the Lord, who's all-present, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Instead of giving up, which they should have done, the prophets of Baal increase their religious activity. They start cutting themselves with swords and lances till the blood starts coming out. Apparently, this was a custom to sort of get Baal's attention. It shows that sometimes uh, sincerity isn't all that is needed, right? These people were very sincere and devoted, but they were wrong in their sincerity. And they keep on. They, time keeps rolling on. Nothing's changing. And uh, the prophets, they just keep babbling on and raving on. It reminds me of Jesus. Remember when he was t- teaching us how to pray? He warned how the Gentile pagans, how they would think they would be heard by their many words. We don't need to babble on to God. He knows what we need. He knows what's on our heart. But they do, and they just keep going on and on. They look like babbling fools, and no one is paying them any attention at this point. So we've seen the announcement of the contest, the defeat of Baal. Now we come to the third part, the triumph of the Lord. The triumph of the Lord. Scene shifts now to Elijah, but let's keep reading. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah calls the people to himself. He repairs the altar that had fallen into disrepair. Again, another disadvantage of of Elijah. He's got a broken down altar here, but he fixes it back up. And how did he fix it? Did you notice that? How many stones did he put there? Twelve stones. What was that symbolizing? The tribes of Israel, he was wanting them to be restored. And this was a way of symbolizing that he builds this trench, which was kind of a new rule that he was putting in just for himself to add to the degree of difficulty. 
Elijah. He completes all the sacrifice preparations. And then he starts asking people to put water on the sacrifice, right? And of course, your natural thought is, Elijah, why are you doing that? That's only going to make it that much harder. I have a wood stove at my house, and I know that when you put moisture on that wood, it makes it harder to burn, right? What are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I'm not done. Do it a second time. Do it a third time. So much so that the water spills out and fills up the trench. Wow. Now we come to the climax. Verses 36 to 40. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let, none of the, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So at the time of the offering of the oblation, this was about 3 p.m., Elijah prays to the Lord. And notice what he asked, that he would make it known that God was in Israel, that Elijah was his servant. And he's not just asking, and he's not asking for his glory, for his honor. He's asking that people's hearts would come back to the Lord. He wanted Israel to be restored, to turn back from this idolatry that they were chasing after. And when he prays, fire came down from heaven. And amazing as that would be, this was no normal fire because it not only consumes the sacrifice, but what else does it consume? It, it consumes the water and the trench. And it also consumes the stones and the dirt. Those things don't burn naturally, right? If you have a fire, you put dirt to take out the fire. This fire consumes all of that stuff. God gives a dramatic display of his power. And given all the circumstances, we have seen what a display it is. And the people, what do they do? They fall down and they worship the Lord, right? They fell on their faces. Elijah's prayer is answered. The people's hearts are turned back to God. As the chapter concludes, Elijah goes on to pray. And the drought that had lasted for several years on the land finally ended. What a great story, amen? amen? One of the most powerful stories in all of Scripture. As we close, let me offer three points of application. First is this, God has no rivals. God has no rivals. And consequently, he was determined that his people would not worship false gods. I mean, what is the very first commandment, right? What is it, church? You shall have no other gods before me. The Lord alone is God. And all throughout Scripture, we see this constant running battle with the Lord and false gods, between the Lord and idols. God made us, He made each of us to worship Him. But because of our sinful nature, 
We don't like to worship a God who is creator and judge. But because we have that worship impulse just wired into our heart, we have to worship something, don't we? And so we create something to worship, but something we can control. Something we give our allegiance to. Something that we put our trust in. Something that, that we value more than other things in the world. We create idols. Now, in ancient times, idolatry of different gods was everywhere. Still exists in different parts of the world. In our nation, religious idolatry isn't as prevalent because of the influence of Christianity. But make no mistake about it idolatry still abounds all around us. We just have non-religious idols such as power and pleasure and excuse me and prestige. These are just as much idols, okay? It's what we give our devotion, our time, what matters to us when they're taken away, woo, watch out, right? We turn into the incredible hulk. We get angry. These are idols. They're just in a different form. I read an article this past week by Thaddeus Williams. He's a professor at Biola University who claimed that self-worship is actually the fastest growing religion in the world. For many people, their highest goal is to make themselves happy, and they're the source and the guide to do so. They don't look to God. They look to self. They have made themselves a God. Sadly, this mindset not only violates God's command, but it's doomed to failure because we are not God. And God is not going to tolerate rivals. You say, what does he do? Well, he may not call down fire like he did with Elijah, but he might do like he did, as it says in Romans 1, where he gives people over to their idols. And he allows them to chase after these things. He pulls his hands back, so to speak, so that they chase after these idols. And the results of self-worship are devastating. Look around our nation at all the confusion, all of the despair, all of the isolation, all of, ironically, the self-righteousness. That all comes from idolatry, friends. Self-worship is foolish and destructive. God made us to worship Him alone. He has no rivals. Is that fixed in your heart today? Do you have idols that you're chasing after? Let God be the one you give your devotion to. And friend, He does it for our own good. It's not because He is trying to take away our joy and our satisfaction in life. He knows those things are destructive, and so he's drawing people to himself. He's pointing people to himself. God has no rivals. Amen? Amen. Secondly, Jesus is greater than Elijah. Like I said with this whole sermon series, we need to read these stories in light of the rest of Scripture, and we need to read this now in light of Jesus. Jesus is greater than Elijah. Of course, Elijah was this mighty prophet. Jesus was a mighty prophet too, but Jesus is much more. He is God incarnate, which we celebrate at Christmas time, right? God has come in human flesh. And let's see what the New Testament says in light of that with Elijah. 
Does that bring any memories to mind about Elijah in the New Testament? In the Gospels, there's a very famous passage that appears with James, John, and Peter, where Jesus takes three of his, these three disciples, his closest disciples, and he takes them up to a mountain, not Mount Carmel, but a mount called Tabor. You remember this episode? It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, this one instance, pulls back the veil so that people, these three individuals, get to see his glory, so to speak. He doesn't veil it like he did the rest of his life. And when they see his glory, they are overwhelmed by this experience. Now, do you remember there were two other people there at that episode? Moses and who else? Elijah. And they're having a conversation with Jesus about when Jesus was going to go back to heaven. Elijah's a great man, mighty prophet. He's having a conversation with Jesus. Wow, it's incredible. But he's not Jesus, is he? There's only Jesus. He's greater than Elijah. And consequently, Jesus' demands come with greater power and authority and urgency than Elijah. And what's interesting is that in Luke 9, a little bit after that episode, Jesus bumps into three would-be disciples who come up to him. And they all have different excuses about following Jesus when he issues a command to come and follow him. One of these men says, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me go say bye to my family. That might ring a bell, too. Because when Elijah called Elisha to be kind of his disciple as a prophet, the same thing happened. Elisha said, hey, can I go say bye to my family? And Elijah said, okay, I'll let you do it. Jesus says no to this man. Is Jesus cold and heartless all of a sudden? No. But he saw through this man's motives that he was making excuses and so Jesus saw these, these disciples that they were limping between following Jesus or not. And because of who he is and the redemption he accomplished, Jesus demands a response now because of who he is. Let me ask you, have you ever committed to follow Jesus if not, get off of the fence. Stop making excuses. Follow him wholeheartedly. Do not limp between Christ and whatever idols you might have in your life that you're clinging on to. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. And let me just tell you from someone who has let go of his idols in his life to follow Christ. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. And everything you're looking for in those idols, he will give you. Are you looking for peace? Jesus will give it. Are you looking for forgiveness? Jesus will give it. Are you looking for purpose in life? Jesus will give it. Are you looking for eternal life? Jesus will give it. Heed the call that Jesus gives. Follow him today 
and do not look back, and you will thank God that you did so. Jesus is greater than Elijah. And then lastly, the power of righteous prayer. You know, when you read about Elijah, it's very tempting to think, man, God has his super saints, (laughs) and then he has regular people like us, right, that we don't really see any kind of great answers to prayer. But actually, did you know that Scripture teaches otherwise? And actually, it uses Elijah to make its point. In James 5, James urges the church to confess their sins so that they are healed and that their prayers have more power. He says then in verse 16 to 18, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Do you follow that? So a righteous person has great power in their prayers. James points to Elijah. He points to Elijah because he is an elite saint, right? That's not what he says, is it? He says Elijah is just like you and I. He's a regular person. He was a sinner. He confessed his sin so that his relationship with God was not hindered. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So when we sin, we need to confess it to God so that our prayers have power. Sin hinders the flow of God's power, just like dirt flow, or hinders the flow of water in a pipe, right? It just stops it up. And though Elijah sinned, the overall direction of his life was obviously obedience to God. He lived a righteous life. His obedience brought power to his prayers. And so because Elijah was righteous, he prayed and it affected the weather. Like we read it at the very beginning at the sermon there, right? So I want us to take away from this a word of encouragement God wants each of us to have powerful prayer. Yeah, maybe not to the extreme of Elijah, but he's trying to leave an encouragement for all of his people to have power in their prayers. But we need to be pure, don't we? How we live affects the power of our prayers. If it doesn't matter enough for us to try to live a righteous, holy life, then we can't expect to see a lot of power in our prayers. It's a choice we have to make, right? We need to be pure. So let me ask you, are there specific sins that are holding you back from powerful prayer that you need to confess to God today or to confess to other people perhaps things that you have done that have wronged others and you need to get right with them? And will you live with greater obedience so that, you're, so that you will grow in the power of your prayers? Is that your heart this morning? Amen? Amen. Amen? Let us seek the promises of God. He is faithful and he will respond. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this story with Elijah. 
God, it captivates our attention. And Lord, I pray that it stirs our hearts. Lord, remind us again today that you have no rivals. And Lord, where we see idols in our hearts, God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart so that we would turn away from them and turn to you. And Lord Jesus, I pray for you to draw people today, just like you did back in Luke chapter 9, that you would summon people to follow you. They wouldn't make any more excuses. They would get off the fence. They would follow you wholeheartedly. No more limping between you and idols. And Lord, we pray for all of us, Lord, that we would seek you to have power in our prayers. Help us to come with clean hands and a pure heart before you and look to you to do great things in our midst. Lord, help our church to be a clean church, a bride that is purified and waiting for the groom to return as we saw in the book of Revelation. And Lord, even at this moment now, bring things to mind in our hearts that we need to get right with you or to get right with others in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this time to open up your word. May you be magnified. And we pray in your name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.